Hello, welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast produced by the Heart Failure Society of America. Heart Failure Beat is designed specifically for clinicians who treat heart failure patients in the United States of America and around the world. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Priya Mapathy, an assistant professor of medicine and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. And my name is Dr. Michael Beasley, assistant professor of medicine and an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now let's get to our episode. I'm very happy to bring you another episode of Heart Failure Rounds. After last month's wonderful discussion on heart transplant equity with Dr. Nazri and Ibrahim, a number of heart transplant-related articles caught my eye this month. First of all, there was a large guideline document that was published in this month's edition of the Journal of Heart and Lung Transplantation. This guideline document was initially published online back in December, but it is in print in this month's edition. The title of the guideline is the International Society for Heart and Lung Transplantation Guidelines for the Care of Heart Transplant Recipients. As you can imagine, this is a gigantic document covering all sorts of things in relationship to the care of heart transplant patients. The document is broken down into four separate sections. The first section addresses the perioperative care of heart transplant recipients. The second discusses immunosuppression and rejection. The third addresses the long-term care of heart transplant recipients and management of complications. And the last section covers the long-term care of heart transplant recipients, including prevention and prophylaxis. This document appears to be must-see reading for any advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology fellow out there learning how to take care of transplant patients, as well as for all faculty members who participate in the care of heart transplant recipients. Additionally, this month's edition of Jack Heart Failure contains a mini-focus on heart transplant policy. Within this journal edition, there are many interesting articles that I would like to bring your attention to. For example, an article discusses the impact of the 2018 UNOS heart transplant policy change on patient outcomes. Another article assesses the accuracy of initial U.S. heart transplant candidate rankings. And several commentaries are included, which discuss the future of the heart allocation policy, how to make the transplantation allocation system better, and how to develop a system for best performance for cardiac transplantation. However, the article that I would like to dive deep into today was published in the April edition of Jack Heart Failure. This article is called How to Approach HLA Sensitization in Heart Transplant Candidates. It is an implementation perspective, with the first author being Dr. Rupa Rao, from the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis, Indiana, and the senior author being Dr. Michelle Kittleson from the Department of Cardiology Smith Heart Institute at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. This paper highlights a situation that we commonly encounter as heart transplant cardiologists where we run into patients with preformed antibodies to human leukocyte antigens, or HLA, And this limits the number of donors that they may receive a heart from. It appears that the number of patients who are sensitized is increasing over time. And the authors postulate that this may be due to the higher number of patients being stabilized on mechanical circulatory support, those undergoing redo heart transplantation, and also the fact that we are now transplanting a number of patients with adult congenital heart disease who have undergone prior congenital heart surgeries. It's very important to treat these patients appropriately because patients who are sensitized going into transplant are at higher risk for worst post-transplant outcomes, and this includes a higher risk of rejection, graft dysfunction, coronary artery vasculopathy, as well as just an overall risk of mortality. I found this paper to be very educational and very easy to read. I also would recommend this paper for all fellows in training in advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology, as it uses a case to walk you through the different aspects of evaluating and taking care of a patient who is sensitized to human leukocyte antigen. So let's dive into the paper. 
So the case begins with the presentation of a 42-year-old woman who presents for evaluation. This patient had a HeartMate 3 LVAD implanted three years prior for peripartum cardiomyopathy. She has a calculated panel reactive antibody CPRA value of 92% for antibodies with mean fluorescence intensity, MFI, of over 5,000 or 60% if you considered only those antibodies that fix complement or that were C1Q positive or at present 1 to 8 dilution. The authors then go on to discuss the assessment of anti-HLA antibodies, including how to identify, quantify, and understand the function of such antibodies. They discuss the importance of the calculated panel reactive antibody and its meaning. From there, they move on to the second part of the case, where the patient, due to her known sensitization, had previously received intravenous immunoglobulin, or IVIG, and rituximab with no effect. At that time, additional desensitization strategies were considered, including IVIG, obinutuzumab, bortezumab, and tocilizumab. The authors then proceed to discuss these desensitization strategies, and we will return to this in just a few moments. The third part of the case explains that the patient was then listed after being desensitized with a prospective cross-match with no expectation to presumptively avoid certain HLA in order to expand the donor pool. They state that a suitable donor became available with a negative CDC cross-match and positive flow cross-match crossing one high-binding antibody, class 2 antibodies with 17,000 MFI. The patient received methylprednisolone, 500 milligrams IV, over the first 24 hours after transplantation, followed by a corticosteroid taper and rabbit antithymocyte globulin, 1.5 milligrams per kilogram IV after transplantation for five days, followed by IVIG, one gram per kilogram for two days. Then eculizumab was administered intraoperatively as well, and then weekly for seven weeks. The next part here, the authors then move on to discuss how to evaluate a potential donor. They describe the value and importance of virtual cross-match, as well as cell-based cross-match, and then how to approach a patient that has a positive flow cross-match. Finally, it's described that the patient underwent, you know, successfully was transplanted, underwent endomyocardial biopsies at week one through four, week six, week eight, and months three through six, and months eight, 10, and 12, and none showed any evidence of antibody-mediated rejection. HLA antibodies were measured at months one, three, six, and 12 post-transplant, with donor-specific antibody being resolved at six months post-transplantation. Her graft function remained normal, and the patient was maintained on tacrolimus with a gold trough of 5 to 10 nanograms per milliliter and switched from mycophenolate mofetil to serolimus, targeting a trough of 4 to 8 nanograms per deciliter at six months post-transplant. She was maintained on 5 milligrams of prednisone daily indefinitely, and an angiogram at one year showed no evidence of cardiac allograft vasculopathy by intravascular ultrasound. So to circle back and to summarize the content that is discussed in the paper, there is a very nice figure that the authors put together. So the way that they would recommend this in a stepwise process is one, step one, assess the anti-HLA antibodies. Identify if there are anti-HLA antibodies present, which are they, how strong are they, meaning what is the MFI, and what are the function of these antibodies. From that point forward, you determine what is the CPRA, and if the CPRA is greater than 50 to 70%, it's recommended that if the patient is going to be listed for transplant, a prospective cross-match would be recommended. From there, you move on to trying to consider a desensitization strategy, again, for these patients with a CPRA of greater than 50 to 70%. They talk about different possible strategies depending on the setting, if this would be an inpatient versus outpatient setting. In the inpatient setting, they would recommend the use of plasmapheresis and bortezomib, followed by tocilizumab. In the outpatient setting, they recommend the use of IVIG with rituximab, followed by plasmapheresis and bortezomib, followed by tocilizumab. And it would seem that the CPRA would be reassessed following these different types of desensitization strategies, and you would proceed to that next desensitization strategy either in the inpatient or outpatient arm if that CPRA still remained greater than 50% following the first attempt at desensitization or the prior attempt at desensitization. Finally, if a prospective donor is identified, how do you interpret that cross-match? So there's two ways that this is done with cell-based cross-match. We are looking either at complement-dependent cytotoxicity or flow cytometry. 
If both flow cytometry and complement dependent cytotoxicity, CDC, are negative, that patient can proceed straight to transplant. On the other hand, if both the flow cytometry and CDC are positive, then that patient should not proceed to transplant. The ambiguity is in the middle where you may have a positive flow cytometry with a negative CDC or negative complement-dependent cytotoxicity. And in these cases, what the authors recommend is using eculizumab perioperatively to further desensitize the patient. In regards to the desensitization strategies, there is a very nice table in which the authors talk about the mechanisms of actions of these various therapies, as well as the protocols which they use, including dosing and dose frequency. Again, I think this is a very high-yield document, particularly for advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology fellows in training, but likely, again, for any advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist out there. Well, thank you for listening to Heart Failure Rounds. This month, we have a really excellent conversation between two luminaries in the field of medicine. And I hope you stay tuned and enjoy what we have coming up next in our month's featured conversation. This is a very exciting episode that we're bringing to you today. And the episode is really themed against a backdrop of us as healthcare providers, as we know across the nation, healthcare teams that care for heart failure patients are extremely diverse. And given the explosion of new guidelines and heart failure therapies that have come into this space, we thought it would be a great idea to discuss best practices and strategies for managing adult heart failure patients that was geared for members of the team that were not heart failure specialists per se. We are so fortunate today to have brought together two of the titans in their respective fields with Drs. Center and Yancey. We hope to benefit from their combined expertise to put our guidelines into context for the excellent care delivery of everyday patients. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce Dr. Clyde Yancey. Dr. Yancey is, amongst many, many things, the Vice Dean for Diversity, Equity and Inclusion the Magistat Endowed Professor and Chief of Cardiology and Professor, Department of Medical Social Science at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome, Dr. Yancey. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you today. And I have the distinct pleasure of introducing our other guest today, Dr. Robert Centaur. Dr. Centaur is Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He's a former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians, and many of you may be familiar with him for his work as the host of the podcast, Annals on Call. And I have to just tell a nice little story that when we were planning this podcast, I was driving home from work and Dr. Centaur gave me a call, and I was so used to listening to his voice over my my radio system on Annals on Call to have actually the opportunity to speak to Dr. Centaur as I was driving home was quite the experience for me. I had a little bit of a starstruck moment. So I'm super excited that Dr. Centaur is joining us here today. And Dr. Centaur, thank you for taking the time to speak with us here on Heart Failure Beat. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been taking care of heart failure for almost 50 years. It's a great topic for us to get better at. Yeah, thank you. Well, to go along those lines, as you had mentioned to us previously, you've been on the wards, in the trenches, taking care of patients with heart failure for 44 years. And that's a lifetime for some of us. And you have a wealth of experience and information and, and times of stories to relate of regarding the care that you've provided for patients with heart failure. To start off our podcast here, do you mind just telling us a little bit about how you've seen the landscape change over your, your career and how the care of heart failure has progressed from back when you were starting your days as a resident or an intern to now as, as an attending physician and decades later, kind of where you see the field and this disease as it stands today. When I was an intern in 1975, if you were admitted to my service with heart failure, class four were your symptoms at rest, your life expectancy was six months. All we had was DIG, and we gave too much DIG. We made people toxic, and we had furosemide. We didn't, didn't have any other loop diuretics. We did, when we needed to really diurese someone, we had metolazone, and we'd add a metolazone to the furosemide and get pretty good results. We were very good at diuresis, but not much good at anything else. 
during my career, towards the end of my residency, they started doing Swan Gans catheters, and we started using afterload and preload reduction with hydralazine at doses that often caused lupus, and used a lot of isosorbide dinitrate along with that. Eventually, in the 80s, ACE inhibitors came out, and we finally had something that really made a big difference. That was exciting, learning how to use ACE inhibitors. We had to learn how to use ARBs. Then we had the great debates over whether we should be giving beta blockers or not. That took a while, and then we learned that we could we give spironolactone. But the progression of the number of medications that we can use and how to use them and what are the cautions with those are the things that keep changing and are one of the biggest obstacles to us doing proper heart failure care. If I get a new patient with heart failure in the hospital and I start them on a low dose of a beta blocker and I usually start an ARB instead of an ACE anymore in case I want to switch to sacobutrol, valsartan, trying to make sure that I can get the patient to titrate the medications up later on is a huge problem. The other big obstacle is I think that many physicians are uncomfortable with the adjustments needed with diuretics. What I see admitted to my service, and this is a VA service, so we get all comers, is either under diuresis or over diuresis. Now, the people who are being diuresed properly, I don't see. But I see diuretic resistance, and it's often because we're not using the diuretics right in the first place. And then I see volume contraction because the patients are very adherent and over diurese. And that's become even more of a problem since we started using SGLT2s because they're a more complex diuretic. So that's the big change is now trying to juggle larger number of medicines that have side effects, that have interactions, and trying to understand how to use all those together. That's an amazingly rich experience, Dr. Center, and wow, it's an honor really for us to, to speak with someone who's gone through the evolution of everything from DIGE to hydralazine and associated lupus to some of the challenges that you spoke about, which I think are excellent points and are opportunities for us to bridge the gap. And I wanted to just springboard off of that and ask Dr. Yancey, since you've had, you have such a wide and deep breadth of expertise and such deep involvement in shaping how we, as heart failure specialists, practice clinical heart failure today. And I was hoping that you could comment on the field of heart failure, how it's evolved, the current heart failure landscape, and opportunities for intervention that can dovetail into some of the comments that Dr. Center made. So I'm delighted to be a part of this conversation, and Dr. Center, is great to listen to your oratory and understand the arc that you've experienced in cardiovascular medicine in general and heart failure specifically. And for Dr. Mapathy and Dr. Beasley, thank you for hosting this very important podcast. Let me start with the most important statement I wish to convey. Anything anyone is thinking about heart failure today, hit the Control-Alt-Delete button. It's a very different process. I won't even call it a disease process now. Whatever you learned, whatever you think you know today, unless you've been deeply involved in generating guidelines or evidence, hit the Control-Alt-Delete button. It's different. When I first got in this business in the mid to late 80s, it really was failure. Just as Dr. Center articulated, the persons that came under our care either went for high-risk experimental heart transplantation or received diuretics until renal failure ensued, and it really was a get-your-fares-in-order sort of conversation. Very disheartening. But this is really an opportunity to endorse the incredible importance of discovery science. Legions of people invested their life's work in understanding left ventricular dysfunction, the hemodynamic perturbations that Dr. Sinta already referred to, bringing in the neurohormonal maladaptations and the opportunity for new targets. I want everyone to understand this. It's science that allows us to have these very different conversations. It was definitely failure before, no question about it. But now science has allowed us to arguably do something we never thought was conceivable. We can begin to take failure out of the equation. 
and we can start thinking about a much more favorable prognosis. We can start thinking about a much better quality of life. We can start thinking about patients that have an opportunity to live longer and better. That's why we got into the business to begin with. Whether it's as a clinician, investigator, teacher, administrator, we want to help the human spirit thrive free of disease as long as possible. And heart failure is a microcosm where we've been able to do that driven by science, somewhat by advocacy, and certainly by need. If I relate just a few moments that I think have been pivotal, I've had the privilege of being in the room when discoveries were first announced or new hypotheses were first introduced. I was one of the Scudhef investigators in a room in 2005, and we realized that an implantable defibrillator saved lives of primary prevention. I was in the room when we planned the AHEP trial. It seemed incredulous that we would explore this sub-study result that was non-pre-specified in a very small number of people, again, using hydralazine and nitrates, as Dr. Sinta already identified. And remarkably, I was in the room when the DSMB meeting told us, you need to sign on at 6 a.m. We have an important message for you. The study is dramatically positive. Those are defining moments in your career. I was in the room when the first inclinations were released that perhaps Paradigm HF was not just a positive study, but a remarkably positive study. Something beat the ACE inhibitor. These are just incredible moments in our arc of scientific discovery that have made a difference. So I'll go back to where I began, Dr. Umapathy and Dr. Beasley. Whatever the average listener knows about heart failure right now, hit the control alt delete. It is a totally different dynamic, and we need to think about it in a contemporary context. And the reason we can do such is because of discovery science, and we arguably are right at the precipice of being able to take failure out of the ordinary vernacular. Yes, there are those that have advanced disease, but for the patients that we can see in a reasonable time sequence and provide the resources, medical therapy, and physician and provider care, we can change this arc, and that's for the good. It sounds like the way that you phrase this, Dr. Yancey, it's, it's such an exciting time and to hear everything that you've been a part of over the course of your career. Just to imagine what those moments must have been like, it was it must have been truly amazing to, to have been there. And I can only hope to have a little bit of that excitement in, in, our, in my career, I'm sure Priya as well, as time goes by. To turn back to Dr. Centaur, as Dr. Yancey has, has talked about, our field of heart failure has really been accelerating in regards to discovery science, new medications that have become available, new recommendations in regard to therapies that might be recommended for certain patients. And I'm talking about either invasive therapies through structural intervention or also other types of implantable devices. It's really hard even for as a heart failure cardiologist to really keep up with everything that's been coming out over the years. As somebody who's really seeing most of the patients with heart failure, when they come into the hospital, they're being seen by a medicine physician. At what point in your clinical practice do you tend to think, you know, this is somebody whom I'm very comfortable taking care of. I know that I can get them from point A to point B and get them back home. And what types of things do you think are common issues that arise for medicine physicians when they tend to think this might be a patient where I, I might need to call for a cardiology consult? How do you walk through that process yourself? I like the question. It's a challenging question. Let's start out with what I think the common problems are. So one common problem is that they're underdiuresed. And trying to understand why is something that I'm pretty good at as an internist. Sometimes they're not taking the medicine. Sometimes it's being prescribed too often, leading to compensations that cause diuretic resistance. Sometimes the patient doesn't like taking the diuretic because it interferes with their ability to lead their life during the morning because they have to find a bathroom and they have an hour commute. And so trying to understand, those are the common problems. The next common problem is the patient not understanding the medications. So why do I have to take this ARB and this beta blocker the rest of my life? And I don't like the beta blocker because I can't play tennis as well as I, as I used to. 
So trying to deal on a practical level, it's great to have all these new medications, but trying to figure out how to use them and convince the patients. It's gotten much better and much more complicated with the SGLT2 story because too many physicians don't understand the need to adjust the diuretics when they put someone on SGLT2. And then sometimes I'm trying to figure out exactly what's the best medication combination given the other problems the patient has. So sometimes that's a reason for a consult. One of the things that I try to teach my students, interns, and residents is the three reasons to call an electrophysiologist. And I think this should be true for every practicing physician. If they have a decreased ejection fraction for three months, and you'll have to tell me it's either 30 or 35, I always forget, then they need an implantable defibrillator. If they have a left bundle with prolonged QRS, they need to talk to an electrophysiologist to consider biventricular pacing. And if they have atrial fibrillation, given the advances in the management of atrial fibrillation with a decreased ejection fraction, or even in people with a fairly normal, or what I think you now call a mid-range, it's not exactly decreased, but it's not exactly increased. You, you confuse me with all those hefs, hefs and pefs and stuff. But those patients can definitely benefit from decreasing the atrial fibrillation burden, and so that's a reason for consultation. If we think the patient needs a right heart cath to better define what's going on because we're confused, that might be a reason to call it. Or if we think that their coronary artery disease has not been diagnosed and we think there's something going on, that might be it. And the last reason is to make sure certain patients have follow-up with cardiologists rather than primary care physicians. I've been a primary care physician and a hospitalist, and not all primary care physicians are going to feel comfortable with the more complex heart failure patient. So many of those people will benefit from having a heart failure physician. That's how I put all that together. So, Dr. Beeson, I'm going to jump in here because this is a great opportunity. Dr. Center, I can't thank you enough for your presence and your voice today because this is bidirectional. As a heart failure physician, I have no business treating diabetes. I have no business treating degenerative joint disease. I have no business even thinking about treating depression. I have no business treating sleep disorders. And so there has to be this partnership with primary care physicians so that we can actually provide the best environment in which a patient needs in order to recover from things. These diseases don't exist in isolation. We have to take the comprehensive view. And we know that the presence of comorbidity substantially, substantially leads to more morbidity and mortality. And the other thing I like about Dr. Sinter's presence is that we are already juxtaposed. I am a strong advocate of discovery science assimilating information, and you know that for over 20 years I've been writing clinical practice guidelines in heart failure, started in 2003. But Dr. Center has introduced a phenomenally important concept. Where is our implementation science? I'm adept, I think, at understanding what to do, but the important question that Dr. Center has is how do you do this? How do you take the four pillars of therapy that I've advocated over the last several months and tried to encourage everyone to embrace the four pillars. How do you do that? How do you deal with a patient who has heart failure and something else so that now the average number of medicines is nine, 10, 12 medicines? How do you do something so practical as make it so that a person can take their heart failure medicines and get to work without having their clothes soiled? I mean, this is everyday stuff that human beings care about. And I can talk about p-values and number you to treat as long as I wish, but a patient has to live with this and has to know how do you put this in perspective. So I'm applauding Dr. Center because I think that lens of how human beings are trying to process the directions that we give them, that start from the evidence we generate and the guidelines that I write, that really is the new matrix in which we have to think about heart failure. It will still be failure if we don't figure out how to do implementation signs, how to be very patient-friendly with what we do. It will still be failure. I think those are very valid and great comments, Dr. Yancey, and I think that is the crux of this, implementation signs, right? How do we distill down and make the messages that we are trying to drill into the population? You need four pillars of guideline direction to tell these are what they are, and 
you're kind of left your own devices to figure that out, right? Dr. Center brought up a great point about diuresis, right? What do you do with diuretic resistance and renal failure and all of these other things? And I will say, decoding the guidelines is hard because each patient is different. Each clinical scenario is different. I do think that HFSA has done a great job with their optimal medical therapy for non-specialists. So they do have a program that talks about the implementation of different types of guideline-directed medical therapy, things too that you can try to troubleshoot through the AKIs that you encounter with SGLT2 inhibitors. Dr. Center brought up a great point. Not everybody knows to adjust diuretics when they start an SGLT2 inhibitor. Not everybody knows that there's an expected bump in creatinine. That doesn't necessarily mean that the person's in renal failure you know, and that it's something that we should stop, right? So I think there is a lot of nuance in how these life-saving therapies are delivered. And I think there are some programs out there that I think do a good job of addressing that. And I think for us as a heart failure community, this is an opportunity for us to bridge a gap. And I wanted to ask Dr. Yancey, I was going to bring it back to him and say, you know how Dr. Center said, these are the three reasons to get an electrophysiologist involved? What are the three reasons to get a heart failure cardiologist involved? And is there something that we can do by way of the fact that we have more telemedicine, digital health options out there that we can really find a way to tangibly build a bridge between primary care providers, nurse practitioners, internists, and heart failure cardiologists to try to address these very practical concerns about the implementation of heart failure science and discovery that's out there. And I wanted to bring that back to Dr. Yancey. So two questions. One, top three reasons to get a heart failure cardiologist involved if you're a doctor center and his team. And number two, how do we more easily make that happen? So I'll take number two first, because I think that's the really important conversation. We have subspecialized ourselves out of relevance. Because we have focused so exquisitely on advanced heart failure, mechanical circulatory support and transplantation, and evident necessity for those patients with refractory disease and with unsettling prognoses, we have excluded the other 98% of the people with heart failure from the training model for physicians who wish to provide care for heart failure. We haven't accommodated that space. And so by almost making ourselves irrelevant, it is now incumbent upon us to understand how do we bring what we understand to the threshold where more people can deploy it successfully than just those that have been trained in heart failure transplant. I would argue that for Dr. Sensor's purposes, if he picks up a phone and calls a heart failure specialist today, the conversation will approximate right away to, does this person have indication for transplant or any mechanical circulatory support, maybe a CRT device, and if not, click. And so we need to figure out a different way. I'm so delighted you took the perspective of trying to understand, is there a digital solution here? Is there a way that we can use the electronic health record in a healthy way to identify who is and who isn't exposed to the four pillars of therapy? Is there a way that we can think about emerging digital technologies like wearable devices that can allow the ordinary, and when I say ordinary, I don't mean it in a pejorative way, but the everyday care provider to understand how well a patient is doing and titrate those diuretics and up-titrate therapies. So answering that second question first, we fundamentally need to change the business model for who it is that does heart failure care and how we train them. Now, if we go back to the first question, because of the way that we've so arbitrarily done this, and I was part of the conversations when we made the decision to evolve a subspecialization for heart failure transplantation, and by design, it necessarily was inclined towards advanced disease, that means that for the primary care physician, Dr. Sensor and his colleagues, we're talking about the I need help acronym. When are we getting to the point where someone ought to be seen by an advanced care specialist? Ultimately, what are the prognostic indicators that are most important? The measurement of natriuretic peptides is ubiquitous. I would argue that any four-digit natriuretic peptide, I don't care which one you measure, if it's four digits, pick up the phone and call somebody. Not because there's a low EF, but because there's a four-digit natriuretic peptide. Somebody needs to hear about that. 
And here is the other little clinical pearl. If you find that a patient can't tolerate the evidence-based therapies because of blood pressure or renal function, that's not just a random event. That is a poor prognostic indicator. And from my own training, from early in my career, one prognostic marker that has never failed me is hyponatremia. Every patient with heart failure I've ever seen with hyponatremia either enrolled in a clinical trial, got transplanted, or died shortly thereafter. I do not overlook the presence of hyponatremia. And if I throw in another contemporary model, if there's any inkling of cachexia, that's a serious warning. If you don't mind, I'd like to just play off of that a bit. One of the problems we have is there are so many people with decreased ejection fraction that outstrip the number of cardiologists. And so what I think we need is better education of generalists. It has to go with family medicine, has to go with internal medicine, has to go with hospitalists and primary care physicians, and even has to be in some some of the subspecialists like the nephrologists and the endocrinologists need to understand decreased ejection fraction and need to understand, and this is what I don't understand, is the thing we're calling HEFPEF, because I always get confused when, when someone says HEFPEF, and I'm always scared that they, they've mislabeled it. But teaching the internist where we are today, what the nuances are in, in taking care of a heart failure patient is necessary because there just aren't enough cardiologists. The other thing that we sometimes have that we need more of is good heart failure home nurses. Someone can go to the house, make sure they're taking their medicines. This is implementation science, making sure that they're weighing themselves and adjusting their diuretic to the weight. That can really help a lot also and decrease the burden on the heart failure specialists who are extraordinarily busy. And so that that makes it harder for us to get help on the less severe patients. So I think Dr. Sensor's commentary can be reduced to one word, team. And we haven't allowed the evolution of teams with the exception of the advanced disease. And that's that's not the wrong place, but we need that whole team phenomenon in other places. Now, one of the things I hope that we can address, particularly with Dr. Sensor here, is that we need to switch this frame altogether. Because once a patient's been hospitalized with heart failure, despite our best efforts, the prognosis is limited. And once we're to the point of having conversations about when to refer to an advanced heart failure care physician, the prognosis is really limited. What about prevention though? What about upfront? What about when Dr. Center sees the hypertensive, obese patient with diabetes? What can we do to halt that natural history? What about the hypertensive patients I see? My practice is one-third tertiary referral cardiovascular medicine, one-third left ventricular dysfunction and all iterations, and one-third prevention, and most of my prevention care is in hypertension, patients who are not responding to conventional therapy. And I have such vigor in the treatment of hypertension because my lens knows that this is going to lead to heart failure. And so I completely change my stripe and go from being a heart failure doctor to being a prevention specialist because I don't want this patient to show up with dyspnea and a reduced ejection fraction. So I'm pretty strident. We have to get the blood pressure under control. So I'd love to get Dr. Center's perspective on this whole concept of preventing heart failure. Well, I think you're spot on. And I think that's one of the big patient populations is type 2 diabetes. And that's why we need to make sure that SGLT2 inhibitors are affordable. I work at a VA, so I can, I can get anybody in pagliflozin. I just saw on Twitter yesterday that canagliflozin is now available for a little bit over $200 a month, which is about a third of what the other SGLT2s are. Still really expensive and more than most of our patients can afford, but the downstream benefits of getting a patient with diabetes on an SGLT2 inhibitor are so huge. Controlling hypertension, especially with the right medications, is so huge. Understanding resistant hypertension. So all these things do interplay together. And I think that if we don't have the internists and the cardiologists working very closely together 
and making sure that we get a good cardiology education for all of our internists, both inpatient and outpatient, take the best care of these things, both in prevention and early in the disease when you can do essentially secondary prevention and prevent progression. Well, I agree. And I think we've done ourselves a disservice by partitioning our care along cardiology, internal medicine, nephrology, endocrine. We really should have more of a cardiometabolic space when we're thinking about providing care because the risks are so proliferate. We actually have to think about how can we as a team come together and take this one person and intervene appropriately and change their risk for diabetic disease, for cardiovascular disease, for renal disease. And I really do think that gets us to a threshold where I would actually like Dr. Mopathy and Dr. Beasley to give us a perspective because your contemporary space really evolves around this discovery of the ubiquity of benefit of the SGLT2 inhibitors. We're still wrestling with why. There's some fabulous, fabulous physiology that has to do with nutrient density and starvation that might be important here. But I mean, you're in that era that I was in many years ago when the ACE inhibitors emerged. Now you've got this new tool that seems to be uniquely powerful. I would love to know from your lens, how do you approach this brand new therapy? Dr. Beasley? Well, thanks for the question, Dr. Yancey. Um, you were expecting questions today, were you? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's quite okay. And I appreciate the opportunity to share opinions on, on certain things. Before I pivot to that, I'd just like to kind of return to something that Dr. Centaur brought up. And, you know, this is a Heart Failure Beat podcast. And this is the official podcast of the Heart Failure Society of America. So I would be remiss if I did not mention that we do actually have a program for the training of general practitioners in optimal medical therapy for heart failure. So this is called the OMTHF program, Optimal Medical Therapy and Heart Failure Certificate Program. And this is available on the Heart Failure Society of America website. It's a program that can be purchased for a small fee, and it would provide a training in the use of guideline-directed medical therapies for non-heart failure specialists. So for anybody out there listening today who would be interested in learning more about the current guidelines and recommendations for medical therapies for patients with heart failure, please go ahead and in your search engine, whatever browser you like to use, and just search the Heart Failure Society of America, OMTHF program, and you'll find that information there. Jumping back to uh, Dr. Yancey's question, you know, the SGLT2 inhibitors, I think, have been such a positive development in our field because of a number of things. One, we've talked here a lot about heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and how this medication has joined the other pillars to make four pillars of therapy in that space. But, you know, we haven't talked about really how this became a two-way recommendation for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and how it really helped to reduce morbidity and heart failure hospitalizations in in that patient demographic when we really didn't have much to offer them. We were kind of back into that 1980s era, if you will, in HEFREF. We're still kind of there with HEFPEF and trying to figure out what we can do for those patients. And those patients make up a huge number of the heart failure population of 3 million people in the country right now with heart failure, 50% with HEFREF, 50% with HEFPEF. And our HEFPEF patients deserve for us heart failure professionals to talk about them as well. I think getting down to the discovery science about exactly what is the mechanism of action of how these medicines work very well, I'm very glad to allow those that are much more intelligent than I am to figure out that answer, but I'm hanging on to my seat and waiting to see kind of what the discovery science is going to bring about uh, for it, us. It's not about intelligence. It's just about where you spend your time. Yeah, and I, exactly. You know, I wouldn't let you get away with that. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're coming to the top of the hour. And just to wrap up, I want to thank both doctors Yancey and Centaur so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I don't know if either of you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share with the listenership in general about what you feel is one, maybe an important thing for general practitioners to know about heart failure and what we as possibly as heart failure cardiologists need to know about what we should be able to do to best help the general practitioner that's providing that majority of that care in the trenches. I'll ask Dr. Centaur and then we'll pivot to Dr. Yancey. The first thing that I teach my students, interns, and residents about taking care of a heart failure patient, in addition to the goal-directed therapy, is that the goal of diuresis is to make the patient not wet without making the patient dry. And that 
diuretics are sliding scale, sliding scale based upon waiter symptoms that you don't take them every day. And the biggest mistake I see is people being discharged on a high dose of diuretics that they needed in the hospital to lose 30 pounds of, of fluid, get sent home and then come back two weeks later down 20 pounds and really sick from being volume contracted. So learning how to use diuretics, which is not part of the goal-directed therapy, but it keeps people in and out of the hospital. That's what I really would like to, to focus on is the big thing that we need to be better at. And so I'll follow up by saying that I'm aware of the intended audience here with great respect for our peers, really on the front lines of providing clinical care. But I really do want to go back to my opening statement made because I knew who the audience was. I want you to be willing to reframe your data set on heart failure. We were all taught a certain set of facts and figures and we recite those religiously sometimes. But it's changed. It really is a different entity. And the opportunity to talk to patients about the possibility of living longer and better. The opportunity to let someone know that this is not the dismal diagnosis. The even hint that we can tell people that failure does not have to be a part of your vernacular when we're thinking about your health. That so dramatically changes the frame and encourages hope instead of angst. And I think that if we can just take forward what we've learned over decades of study and what's articulated in the guidelines, and if it's incumbent upon me and others to do this, but if we can develop the implementation science that makes it easier to start these therapies and makes it possible for more patients to benefit from these therapies, wouldn't that be for the good? And so I hope that everyone listening thinks about reframing what you know, allowing us to think now about how we make this happen and bringing more hope to patients. That's why we've done all this for all these years. Thank you so much. I can't imagine a better summary and synopsis of an amazing episode. And as somebody who has the privilege of being a basic scientist and is looking at SGLT2 inhibitors and going all the way to patients, I will also give us a plug for the two themes for this episode. One was discovery science, implementation science, and the concept of teams. None of us can do this alone. And to best serve our population, we must be we must be good stewards of them and good stewards of each other. So Thank you again, both of you, Dr. Santo and Dr. Yancey, for your partnership, <laughs> the theme of uh, what we want to bring to the field and to our patients. Uh, thank you for your time and your thoughts. And on that note, we'll be transitioning to, I think, what Dr. Yancey and Dr. Santo like the best, which is going from failure to function, <laughs> right? And how do we reprogram that? So off to our next segment. And thanks again to both of you. Thanks very much. Have a good thank day. You. Thank you both. On this episode of From Failure to Function, we'll visit some highlights from the recently wrapped ISHLT 2023 meeting. In the meeting, there were some exciting studies presented. One such study was from the Intellect2 heart failure investigators, who presented the results of using pulmonary artery pressure sensors to manage patients with left ventricular assist devices. This study was published simultaneously with the presentation of its results in circulation heart failure on April 20th, 2023. As we know, hemoguided management with pulmonary artery pressure sensors is effective in reducing heart failure hospitalizations in patients with chronic heart failure. This study aimed to determine the feasibility and clinical utility of the CardioMAMS heart failure system to manage patients supported with LVADs. This was a multi-center prospective study who followed patients with HeartMate 2 or HeartMate 3 LVADs implanted with CardioMAMS PA sensors. Pulmonary artery pressures, six-minute walk distance, quality of life, and heart failure hospitalization rates through six months were evaluated. Patients were stratified either as responders or non-responders to reductions in PA diastolic pressure, or PAD. The investigators of the trial shared that there were significant reductions in PA diastolic pressure from baseline at six months in responders compared to non-responders, a significant increase in six-minute walk distance among responders, 266 meters versus 322 meters with a p-value of 0.025 compared to no change in non-responders. 
They noted that patients who maintained a PA diastolic less than 20 compared with a PA diastolic greater than or equal to 20 for more than half of the time throughout the study had a statistically significant lower rate of heart failure hospitalization, 12% versus 38.9% with a p-value of 0.005. In conclusion, the investigators noted that LVAD patients managed with cardiomems had a significant reduction in PA diastolic pressures at six months and showed improvements in six-minute walk distance. The maintenance of a PA diastolic pressure under 20 millimeters of mercury was associated with fewer heart failure hospitalizations. The takeaways from the trial suggest that hemodynamic guided management of LVAD patients with cardiomems is indeed feasible and may result in functional and clinical benefits. Another interesting look to the future was the introduction to a randomized control trial that is underway, known as the competence trial. This trial will evaluate the EVA-HART-2 continuous flow left ventricular assist device. The EVA-HART-2 left ventricular assist device has design features such as large blood gaps, lower pump speeds, and an inflow cannula that does not protrude into the left ventricle and is postulated by investigators that this may mitigate the adverse events currently seen in other continuous flow devices that are available. This trial is a prospective multicenter randomized control trial and a non-inferiority study. It will assess the non-inferiority of the EVA-2 device to the HeartMe3 LVAD system for the treatment of patients with refractory advanced heart failure. Investigators note that the primary endpoint is a composite of individual primary outcomes, such as survival to cardiac transplant or device explant for recovery, freedom from disabling stroke, freedom from severe right heart failure after implantation of the original device. The randomization will be in a two-to-one fashion, EVA-2 device to HeartMate 3. Currently, the first patient for this trial was enrolled in December of 2020, and 25 subjects have been currently enrolled. Enrollment of a short-term cohort and a long-term cohort is expected to be completed at the end of 2023 and 2024, respectively. On behalf of Michael and myself, we want to thank you for tuning into the Heart Failure Beat. We'll catch you next time with more exciting news and discussions from the world of heart failure. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the Heart Failure Society of America. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit hfsa.org slash hfbeat. Follow HFSA on Twitter and look for us at hashtag hfbeat.